It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. When you picture a well-off white woman in the antebellum South, you might imagine her sitting on the porch of her plantation home, separated from the daily realities of the enslaved people working her husband's land, both by her legal disenfranchisement and her inherent sweet nature. Maybe there are a few enslaved people working with her in the house, but she never wielded a master's power. After all, she was a victim of the patriarchy too. Couldn't vote could own property, cut off from the market. That picture is all wrong. In her explosive new book, They Were Her Property, historian Stephanie Jones Rogers corrects the record on white women slave owners in the American South. Slavery and its associated markets were far from the sole domain of men. Since women often inherited more slaves than land, they were deeply invested in slavery in both a social and an economic sense. And they defended their property from their husbands, debtors, and other slave owners with as much zeal and as much backing from the courts as their male counterparts. Women specifically invested in the labor of enslaved people, from the crops they cultivated to the babies they nursed, and maybe even the sexual violence they encouraged. So how does the power of women slave owners change our understanding of the relationships between gender, slavery, and capitalism in the 19th century and the present? And why were these relationships obscured for so long? Stephanie Jones Rogers joins us from Austin, Texas, to talk about her work. Thanks for talking to me, Stephanie. And thank you so much for having me. So your whole book is essentially a corrective to this idea that white women who were wealthy enough to own slaves were not just Southern belles who sat idly by. So why do you think that in 2019, there's still this pervasive myth that white women didn't fully invest in slavery? I think there are a number of reasons. Um, Some have to do with uh, the contemporary uh, literature that was emerging in the moments in which these women were actually owning enslaved people. So in the 1830s, when you see 
a formal abolitionist movement emerging, one of the uh, narratives that abolitionists um, constructed around slavery had to do with its ruinous um, impact upon white women. So there was this idea that when you place them in a context in which they have access to the bodies and labor of enslaved people, of other human beings, they become monstrous. They become something other than the fairest sex. And so pro-slavery ideologues in this era, individuals, typically white men, who were um, quite prolific in writing kind of these sanitized and benevolent um, narratives about the institution of slavery and its um, positive impact on African Americans, also constructed this counter-narrative about white women, wherein they uh, played these kind of more maternal roles, these um, nurturing roles to enslaved people. And so they treated enslaved people as almost like their children. So they often would talk about my family, both black and white. So I think some of it comes from the fact that there are these narratives that are emerging in contrast to each other. Um, and I also think it's about the sources that historians use, because many historians who have um, written about white Southern women have largely relied upon the narratives that emerge in diaries, as well as letters, which are typically um, written and left by very elite, um, literate women. And that's a very small uh, minority of white women in the South. So when you rely upon a very small subset of, of documents such as those, and not look elsewhere, or not dig further and more deeply into um, documents, because you don't think you'll find women there, you essentially propagate the same story. Well, I mean, I want you to tell me about your sources for this book, because in addition to reaching for those sources that would illuminate, I guess, illiterate women's ownership in slavery, you also spent a lot of time with the interviews of former slaves during the Great Depression. And their opinions were just a little bit different from the same white women, what they wrote in their letters or told their descendants, right? Absolutely. Um, I would say markedly, <laughs> markedly different um, yeah. in many respects. Um, so I, too, you know, when I began this project in 2009, I, too, looked um, to the diaries and correspondence of white women in slaveholding households um, to determine what exactly they were saying about their direct economic investments in the institution of slavery. And I found, you know, that in, in rare cases, they talked about, um, you know, buying and selling slaves, for example, or inheriting slaves. Um, and then um, passing those slaves on to others within their households. But they didn't talk about it extensively. And rather than reading that as, um, oh, you know, they didn't engage in these economic activities, I looked at that as a sign that it was so unremarkable that it wasn't it didn't cross their minds as something necessarily important enough to write about in their diaries and their letters. So I had to look elsewhere for additional um, evidence to support what I was you know, learning about from formerly enslaved people's testimonies. And so I looked to their testimonies um, and went through a little over 2,000, close to 3,000 um, narratives. These are testimonies that were taken in the 1930s by the federal government. Um, during the Great Depression, the federal government um, sought to employ out-of-work individuals, and they created what was called the Federal Writers Project. And so they put to work unemployed writers and sent them throughout the South, throughout the country more broadly, to 
determine whether they could find formerly enslaved people that were still alive, and then to, once they did find them, to interview them and to ask them about their experiences in slavery. And so we have close to 3,000 of those interviews that were collected by the federal government that many historians have relied upon before. But when I looked at these documents, I asked myself, what did formerly enslaved people have to say about white women as economic actors, as economic investors in their subjugation? Did they talk about women who owned them? Did they talk about women who owned uh, family members or friends or members of their community? Did they talk about being bought or sold by white women? What else did they have to say about white women's direct economic investments in the institution? Um, so I used their their testimonies to then lead me elsewhere. So where else could I find evidence to substantiate what formerly enslaved people were saying? So I looked at bills of sale um, related to slave sales or purchases. These are very much like receipts today. I looked at court records. I looked at correspondence between military officers and their superiors during the Civil War. I looked at petitions to the government, etc. So I was finding all of this evidence to support exactly what formerly enslaved people were saying. And there's so many examples of this evidence and so many examples of just the brutal ways in which these white women were violent towards their enslaved people. But there's this one example that that I think really captures the sadism of female slave owners and also how attuned they were to the economics of what they were doing. Um, And it's of one woman who used a nettleweed branch instead of a cowhide whip because it was both more painful for longer and because it didn't scar and thus didn't Mm -hmm less in the enslaved person's resale value. So how, how was that following the logic of the market? And how else did white women really follow the logic of capitalism and what they were doing? Well, I'll say that um, one of the the questions that I often get when I talk about the brutality that white slave owners perpetrated against enslaved people, they often ask me, well, isn't that counterproductive, particularly when that violence goes too far and um, impairs the value or decreases the value of of enslaved people within the market? And so it might also seem counterproductive to um, your listeners um, that these women may, you know, kind of cross certain lines and, and become so brutal that they impair the value of enslaved people. Um, But what I found is that, of course, some of these women were simply sadists, but there were others who, swinging to the other side of the spectrum, did not engage in acts of of physical violence, but may have engaged in psychological violence or simply threatening violence. But those who kind of fell within the middle um, drew upon a spectrum of techniques. So they picked and they chose from a variety of, of techniques of discipline and management to gain submission. And sometimes they went too far, um, but they always could buy another enslaved person if they had the financial resources to do so. And you actually see that in the colonial period um, where enslaved people were dying from the, the arduousness of the labor. The labor was so intense that they would die typically in the Caribbean within seven years of purchase, within seven years of arriving. So there was always the option of replacing that enslaved person in the market if they had the money to do so. So in some ways, uh, even though it seems counterproductive because it, it could in fact withdraw an enslaved person from the market or decrease their value, they could still go back into the market and and still pay for um, an enslaved person. So in many ways, it wasn't necessarily um, counterproductive. And I know that's not necessarily the question, <laughs> the question you were asking, but it's simply that there's always this option. The market was 
it was always available to them if they had the resources to enter the market. So even if, you know, they impair the value of an enslaved person, they could, in fact, use that that person as an example to others. So there was a spectacle of violence. You know, so there were all of these ways in which even the loss of an enslaved person, the financial loss, as well as the physical loss, could um, have both economic as well as real on the ground benefits in terms of discipline and control. Yeah. Well, one of the things you touched on there is sort of, um, I guess, one other half of the myth that white women weren't involved in slavery and that like white women didn't go out and buy slaves or, you know, it is true that on the books they didn't have as many legal rights as their white male counterparts, whether that was property or voting. And, you know, a fair few didn't even have a full education or literacy. Um, but given these limitations, you prove that women actually did participate in the slave trade all the time. So how did they do that? And how did they protect their property after a marriage or after something else that would technically abrogate their rights? So what's really interesting um, about what I discovered as I looked at what formerly enslaved people had to say about white women's um, ownership was that they frequently talked about women who were married. So their mistresses, their owners were married women. And this was um, striking to me in large part because the prevailing scholarship typically focused on women who either were single and widowed and owned enslaved people in their own right or married women who were indirectly um, benefiting from the presence of enslaved people within their households and benefiting from their labor. So these individual enslaved people, they weren't theirs, but they were they were owned by men in their in their families, for example, and so they benefited indirectly. So there was something about the ways in which scholars were talking about married women in relationship to the economic dimension of the institution that I found quite striking in contrast to what formerly enslaved people were saying. So So this kind of compelled me to look more closely at married slave-owning women. And so they're my primary focus in the book. And so one of the reasons why historians haven't really looked closely at married women's economic relationships to the institution have a lot to do with this legal doctrine of couverture or coverture, depending on whether you want to say it fancy like the French or you want to say it like we do in America. Um, So this doctrine of coverture essentially provided that when a woman who owned property or earned wages married. All of her wages, all of her wealth immediately became her husband's. Her identity, her legal identity, her economic identity were subsumed into her husband. So they became a marital unity. So the husband kind of stood in for both the husband and the wife. And so within this legal doctrine, women weren't supposed to be able to own enslaved people, to buy and purchase enslaved people or other property for that matter, or to, um, to inherit them or acquire them in their own right. But women were able to circumvent this legal doctrine of coverture through legal loopholes. One, um, just to give you an example, um, were called marital contracts, which are very much like prenuptial agreements today, where they essentially said, this is the property I'm bringing into the marriage. This is the property that I will continue to control. My husband will have A, B, and C um, levels of control or no control at all over my property. So they would use these marital contracts to continue to protect um, the property that they brought into the marriage. And they would also include clauses or statements which would say, And if I were to acquire property after I become married, that property will also be under my control and my husband can't interfere with it. So when husbands perhaps 
became indebted to someone, creditors would typically go after the wife's property. And in those moments of crisis, married women would rush into the courts and would ask the courts to protect their property, would bring in documents to establish a chain of ownership, how they acquired that property. And they would often very explicitly say, um, you know, that I inherited this property, I bought this and bought this person from so-and-so and such and such. And judges would routinely rule in their favor if they had all their ducks in a row. So they would acquire them in this way, but they also, you know, once they secured these rights to property, they would then go into the into the slave market, buy enslaved people, sell enslaved people, um, bequeath enslaved people to their children or other um, family members. And they would often invite slave traders, for example, who were traveling through their communities to their um, households to buy and sell slaves to them as well. So in a variety of ways, they accessed the slave market. And they did that by using these legal loopholes. So I mean, all that suggests to me that this requires training. You know, white women were introduced to slave owning and then to violence at some point along the lines. When did that happen? And like, how were little white girls trained to be little white mistresses? That's a wonderful question, because, again, by looking to what formerly enslaved people had to say, I was able to find a kind of additional narrative around white girls, um, very early socialization into slavery. Um, they were trained to become proper slave owners. They often would um, receive enslaved people at birth. So there were instances in which um, a, young, a young white girl was she was one. She was one year old, and when an enslaved person was born, that enslaved infant was given to her as her own at the age of one. Um, there are instances in which young white girls were given enslaved people as their own as birthday gifts, as Christmas gifts, and typically around marriage. So they were given to them as a wedding present, a nest egg, so to speak, so that they could have a great start, financial start. So along the way, through from the time that they were born until the time that they, they were married and thereafter, they acquired all of the skills necessary to become effective slave owners. They learned vicarious lessons through watching their parents, but their parents also allowed for them to kind of practice mastery, to practice slave ownership. And by that, I mean, they were um, allowed to participate in acts of violence and discipline against enslaved people when they were young girls. Um, enslaved people were forced to call them master or mistress at very early ages, even at, in infancy. So there were all of these ways in which they learned learned about their racial difference, but also learned how to be effective masters of enslaved people, mistresses of enslaved people when they were very young. So the reproduction of slavery as an institution is so clearly outlined in your book, and it's one of the most horrifying aspects of it. You know, how these little white girls and boys were trained from birth to be white mistresses and masters. And then especially how the mistresses then ensured the continued birth of more people into slavery. And these two halves of reproduction get all tangled up in the practice of wet nursing under slavery, because often that little white girl being raised as a white mistress was wet nursed by an enslaved woman whose own child was then, you know, it's it's horrible and it's stark. Can you can you talk about wet nursing under slavery and, and what it tells us about the institution? 
So when historians talk about using enslaved women as wet nurses, they typically relegate white women's use of these women in this capacity as a last resort. So there are instances in which they argue, yes, perhaps they did in fact use enslaved wet nurses, but they only did it after they exhausted all other options. Um, so if they had you know, physiological ailments that prevented them from producing enough milk. But what formerly enslaved people had to say was something very different, was quite different. So yes, they did point to physiological issues related to the use of enslaved wet nurses, but they also talked about instances in which um, uh, white mothers were using enslaved women to wet nurse every single one of their children, um, sometimes, you know, in the double digits, 10 children. Um, and so what that also points to, um, and that's often unsaid, is the fact that these enslaved women had to also be lactating, had to also be having children um, in, in, in many respects, as many children as their mistresses were, and sometimes nearly simultaneously with their mistresses. And that also, um, I think, implicitly suggests that some of these um, some of these conceptions may have been connected to sexual violence and sexual assault. Um, so what you also find is that formerly enslaved people talk about white women using enslaved wet nurses simply because they thought that they would be, for example, a slave to their children if they would consistently have to wet nurse their children. Um, they talked about um, the demand that white mothers created for the labor that enslaved mothers were performing in the nurseries of their homes. The demand for their labor was so great that a market in enslaved wet nurses emerged in the South, um, so much so that you would find newspaper advertisements asking people if they had an enslaved woman who could serve as a wet nurse. I found, um, you know, hundreds of these advertisements throughout Southern newspapers and even the most remote um, Southern towns looking for enslaved women to either um, to buy so they could serve in this capacity as a wet nurse or to hire, typically to hire um, as a wet nurse. So there was there was this way in which by looking out for the well-being of white children, white mothers, were also um, impairing the well-being um, of enslaved children by separating these enslaved children from their mothers when they needed them the most. You know, we know now the physiological benefits of breastfeeding infants, um, and they they knew that back then, but they didn't have the science necessarily to back it up. But nevertheless, they understood that um, taking a child away from its mother's breast was, in fact, impairing its ability to thrive and to survive. So these women were making these decisions to seek out um, these wet nurses for their own children's um, physiological benefit, while knowing that, th that those decisions were impairing the well-being of other children, in this particular case, enslaved women's children as well. Um, so the, it was very much bound up in the market. We tend to think about this labor as a very intimate labor and not even labor, yeah. <laughs> even though a woman who's who's attempted to wet nurse or to, to nurse her child knows very well it's labor. But um, in this context, you can see that there's an economic benefit to having access to this labor. Yeah. And there are so many specific examples from your book about how women were directly invested and involved in the daily lives of enslaved people. But I want to pivot back to the present and the time we have left. Mm. There's been a lot of recent research and historiography working to correct the record on white women, their involvement in preserving segregation, in white supremacist organizations, in lynching, in fighting the civil rights movement, in their voting records. So 
would you trace the roots of white women's bad behavior to their role in slavery? Well, I think it's I think it's bigger than slavery. I think slavery is simply um, it, it offers us a window into their broader investments in white supremacy. I think that's the key to understanding this longer history. So, you know, this institution was very much one that was built upon white supremacy. And when you think about slavery in that context, what you what you begin to understand is that from from the moment of settlement, when the decisions to create a racially divided social order um, came to the table, women were at the table. Women were part of the decision making. Women were part of the design of that racially divided social order. And because white women were deeply invested in that racially divided social order from its origins, you can see that in these moments, whether it be the institution of slavery, whether it be their participation in lynching rituals or anti-integrationist um, activism in the 60s, or, you know, 500,000 of them, in, you know, joining the KKK. And at these pivotal moments, these are simply windows into this broader phenomenon of white women investing deeply into the phenomenon of white supremacy and the institutions that uphold it. Reading Stephanie Jones Rogers' book is not only like getting a crash course in all the history you should have learned, but also in historiography. Whose stories are believed? Where do you look for evidence? What's written between the lines and in the absences from the historical record? And there are so many things we didn't even get to discuss. So you'll just have to pick up a copy of her book, they were her property. We'll be back next week with an informal sequel to this episode that gets at these questions from a slightly different lens, literally, photography, and one particular photograph of a young girl who looks white, who was born into slavery and weaponized by the abolition movement. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.